Hey guys, I'm here today with James Davis, a leader for Base Staters of Natural Medicine. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thank you. So excited to chat about psychedelics, a, yeah. uh, a passion we both share. <laughs> so tell us what is Base Staters and why did you start it? So Base Staters for Natural Medicine is a grassroots community group that has ended the war on drugs in four cities. So for us, that means adults are allowed to grow plants like psilocybin mushrooms, and they're also allowed to have small amounts of all controlled substances, because we don't believe that arresting people who are struggling with addiction makes their lives any easier or helps them on that path to recovery. And base daters is a people first organization. We've relied solely on volunteer labor. We don't fundraise any money. And it's that authentic storytelling that has convinced lawmakers to move forward and prioritize this for depression, for mental health, and frankly, an opioid crisis that is now killing more people in our age group uh, than any other cause. Mm -hmm. And the reason we started the group is because a lot of us have experienced the war on drugs firsthand. So when I was growing up in Kansas, a meth lab exploded just a couple doors down from where I grew up in a trailer park and we had to evacuate. It was one of the scariest and most formative experiences of my childhood. And since then, I've also had good friends and family really, really struggle with opiate addiction and with alcoholism, for which these plants are a transformative, transformative therapy. So similar stories among all of our organizers is that this is really personal. And that's why we're going to fight like hell to end Massachusetts war on drugs. Yes, amazing. So what are the entheogenic plants. I know there's more than just psilocybin mushrooms. Yeah. So psilocybin mushrooms are by far the easiest to access. Uh, they're really fun to grow as well. So we teach people how to grow them uh, or legal varieties of mushrooms technically, but thank goodness all uh, mushrooms grow the same way. <laughs> and then there is also a really amazing plant called ibogaine. Uh, so ibogaine is derived from iboga, which is basically a bark uh, from a tree that only grows in Western Africa. So think Gabon down to Angola. And it is a really similar psychedelic experience to psilocybin in the visualizations and what you feel, but it's also a lot more intensive on the heart mm. and it helps reset basically the receptors in your brain that are causing people to really crave alcohol and opiates. So we have folks on our team who went from drinking a bottle of wine a day for almost 20 years after a single experience with Ibogaine in Costa Rica, they no longer have any cravings for alcohol at all. Wow. And folks who have, you know, depended on opioids for a long time for pain management and they just get a chemical dependency one experience with Ibogaine, they never want to touch heroin or opiates again. So it's a moral imperative that we make this plant accessible in the greater Boston area. And we could become a worldwide leader in making these treatments available to everyone in need. 
and the costs are just astronomical when we let people suffer and live on the streets or you know rob their friends their parents strangers cars so I think there's no excuse for Boston and these other cities not to be taking action and allow entrepreneurs like us to start giving people these treatments. Totally agree with that. And there's like, what? I've learned there's peyote Mm -hmm. and what's the other one? Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, yes. Yes. Oh my God. I'm like just learning about all this stuff. Definitely. Well, I'm glad you could pronounce ayahuasca. A lot of folks can't. And I used to struggle as well. Um, We still have people who, in good faith, are just really butchering the word psilocybin too. It's it's hard to get right at first. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So ayahuasca. I just watched the documentary last night and they were pronouncing it all wrong too. (laughs) (laughs) Not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So ayahuasca is a basically a brew that's made in countries like Peru and other South American countries that the active ingredient is DMT, which catalyzes spiritual experiences that are a lot more intense than psilocybin. Uh, And the DMT is able to stay in your system a lot longer than DMT that you would smoke, for example, because something in these vines makes it harder for your body to digest the DMT in your stomach. So you can have, you know, two or three hours, sometimes much longer experiences um, where you are seeing God, you are really having a, a grand old time, um, a lot more intensive an experience than uh, psilocybin for sure. People often vomit because it's uncomfortable on their stomach. So Ayahuasca retreats still operate underground across Massachusetts and this region, sometimes in New Hampshire. But we also think that it has incredible therapeutic effects too. We just know less about it because it's even harder scientifically to study that way. But people have said it's really changed their lives. And if it's not hurting anyone, people should definitely be able to access it. And then for peyote, So peyote's active ingredient is mescaline, uh, a chemical that also facilitates, you know, spiritual experiences, much like psilocybin. Uh, I hear it's a little different. Um, There's also San Pedro cactus, which contains mescaline. The problem with peyote is that it's on the edge of extinction. And so because of uh, ranching, the cows eat it, the cows Mm -hmm. trample it and destroy it because of uh, natural gas, it's getting destroyed as well. And then poaching, there's a lot of uh, Asian collectors that are, you know, taking far more than the environment in the Southwest can handle. And so I would just encourage people to think really critically before they use peyote, just because there is a sustainability component, right? And that's true of, uh, toads as well that are getting exploited for this so my recommendation is psilocybin mushrooms are are pretty awesome I like to stick to them yeah there's a lot of them (laughs) yeah there's always be more definitely so where are magic mushrooms uh decriminalized in Massachusetts so far yes so the first city was in Somerville where I currently live There's Cambridge, Northampton, and East Hampton. And then we have active commitments from city councilors in a lot of cities to come. The Mm -hmm. next city will likely be Burlington, Vermont. 
then Amherst, Massachusetts. Shout out yeah. to uh, our UMass Amherst students. Mm-hmm. There's Newton, Salem. Worcester is passing a version of the resolution for veterans. And then hopefully Boston will also step forward and sponsor our resolution in 2022 as well. I might be blanking on a city. Needham is pretty close. Uh, Medford is very close as well. See, there's so many campaigns going on. It's hard for me to even keep track of sometimes. Yeah. And, oh, I want to bring up, like, I was reading the document you sent about the Boston uh, decriminalization policy. And it was talking about how there's a longstanding uh, public health emergency in Vermont and that the overdose deaths uh, soared by 70%, the highest percentage increase in the U.S. Can you tell us how opioid users could benefit from psilocybin? Yeah, so there was a recent study in the International Journal of Drug Policy. I like to say it was published in 2021, but technically it's getting published in 2022 because it's still forthcoming. Mm -hmm. But it showed a 55% reduction in the risk of opioid use disorder after a single experience with psilocybin. So what's probably happening there is people who are really struggling with depression or trauma, or have just really lost hope, after a psilocybin experience, they're able to put their lives on a better track and avoid becoming addicted to opiates. Because a lot of people who are passing away of overdose, a lot of people who are struggling with opiates, their trauma brought them there. Sometimes it was because of a surgery and things of that nature. But a lot of people, frankly, want to die when they're that addicted or when they're taking that many risks. And I think that psilocybin, by catalyzing these experiences that can help people work through depression, will prevent a lot more people from falling into addiction. What we also hear anecdotally And other studies bear this out. So there was another study of 44,000 Americans. What probably happens is if you're using opiates, it can help you get off of opiates because it limits some of your withdrawal symptoms and cravings. It brings you a little physical relief from withdrawal. And while that's not fully understood yet, we also have plants like cannabis that substantially reduce the pain symptoms that you know, people are turning to opiates to treat. So I think psilocybin is extremely exciting for addiction and also preventing people from falling into addiction, which is an important component too. Yeah. Like it can help with tobacco, alcohol, and like food addiction as well. And like another thing, again, I want to highlight, I wrote like a bunch of quotes down. So I was like, I want to make sure the audience hears this, but, um, there was a part that was written said alcohol is the worst of all drugs despite contributing to generations of family trauma sexual assault car accidents heart disease and overdose this drug is accessible in almost every neighborhood in america and i was like this makes no sense <laughs> yeah like it's wild and what a 2017 study by john hopkins found that smoking patients achieved an 80% absence rate over six months after psilocybin therapy, a 45% higher success rate than most effective FDA-approved smoking cessation drug. 
that is yeah. amazing and like for someone who's quit nicotine themselves and i actually use cannabis and cbd to help me quit nicotine but knowing that psilocybin has an 80 percent abstinence rate is just mind-blowing like it can help a lot of people a ton of people and I'll say too, I like a cigarette once in a while. I like a beer once in a while. I think that we can integrate these substances into our society safely. Yes. But we don't we don't do that by, you know, over licensing them. We don't do that by, you know, making them illegal. In fact, prohibition still exists on alcohol for people who are aged 18 to 21, right? right? And it causes a lot of problems on college campuses because people go out and binge drink, you know, they pregame before mm. they go out to, you know, their friends, right? Or they're having to hide their alcohol consumption where a lot of young women are taken advantage of because it's still an underground space and they, you know, are not able to do that publicly, like at a bar where, you know, in Europe, younger people can drink and they're taught not to binge drink. They're taught yeah. not to drink to the point of blacking out, which is a lot safer and a lot more fun. So, oh, yeah, definitely. The like, culture is so different. Like, for example, if I go to Armenia, there mm. are no kids like my age at the bar. It's all older people and they're all just like casually drinking. And then all these American teenagers come in, and they're just, you know, going to town. But like, it's yeah. the culture is just so different and shows like, I mean, why are, Teenagers are so obsessed with drinking here. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I think part of it is that it's just been the default drug for so long. It's been yes. the only drug we really know about or can access easily. And so unfortunately, it became, in a lot of ways, the drug of choice. So. Yeah. And I also read how psilocybin can help with uh, neurological disorders. Mm -hmm. And they seem to help in the growth of new brain cells. And they can help with uh, migraines, traumatic brain injuries, and even dementia. And I was like, wow, that's really crazy. Um, and the cluster headaches, how they can, those people who have cluster headaches are, can be driven to suicide or opioids. And how um, there was a study done that found that five in seven sufferers reported psilocybin ended the headaches. And one in two reported a complete termination of symptoms. That definitely yeah. got my jaw. I was like, what else could this do? <laughs> it's fascinating. I think that fewer than one in a hundred thousand people have cluster headaches, but our group is probably like one in every four people because that community is very passionate about making psilocybin accessible. So we hear stories of people who go to see their neurologist and their neurologist basically has to, after an hour long conversation about how medications don't work or how Botox marginally works, they'll pull their patient, you know, kind of aside and be like, Hey, I'm not allowed to tell you this, but psilocybin is one of the only known cures for cluster headaches. And it's something you should try. So you have medical professionals who, because of prohibition and because of their licenses being threatened at the state level if they if they mess up they're not able to have as candid of conversations about their patients needs even if they happen to know about psilocybin I would bet a ton of neurologists know nothing about it right. I would bet a ton of Alzheimer's professionals haven't read some of the studies that have been done um, 
that have shown ayahuasca can help with neurogenesis, right? So we won't have that research and we won't have those candid conversations until city by city and state by state, we say these plants have, you know, proven benefits in some cases and then very exciting benefits that are still to be discovered. Yes, definitely. And so who is creating obstacles that go against your mission? I know there's a yeah. good few. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few. So the main one is there's the pharmaceutical industry, which is very nice in how it presents itself, right? They co-op the language of social equity they frankly co-op the benefits of these medicines and point out that they're beneficial, but what their real agenda is, is to monopolize the market and use the FDA's policies to get a very narrow monopoly. So for example, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they are just in a sphere where it they're all just very wealthy people. They grew up with a white picket fence. Um, their types of friends and family are going to be able to afford a ten to $15,000 MDMA regimen. But most Americans don't even have $500 for an emergency expense. Right. And so if they are successful in getting FDA approval... I guess that'll help kind of normalize or destigmatize psychedelics culturally in a way. We'll see. But it could also just give them a war chest of almost $750 million a year to keep lobbying for restrictions on your right to grow these fungi at home, on your right to access Ibogaine without having to pay out the nose for it. And it's, it's really sad because at the end of the day, under the rosiest of assumptions that they have, MAPS will only be able to treat 1% of Americans with PTSD in a decade, right? That's not very many people. And they say that even folks with insurance often won't be able to afford it because you have a deductible. You have to pay almost $8,000 before your health insurance even kicks in. And um, I know most college students don't have $8,000, but oh, the overwhelming majority of adults don't have that like type of liquid money to pay for things like that either. And it's, it's really sad that it, they're going that route instead of using the almost $100 million they have in their budget to just work for decriminalization. They don't yeah. endorse our resolutions. They don't endorse that work, but they, they say they do right? They talk a nice game. They, they use the language of social equity and it's, it's a shame. Yeah. So do you think Boston is going to decriminalize psilocybin anytime soon? They absolutely are. Uh, and it'll be the accomplishment and the breakthrough of a lifetime for so many people in our group who live in greater Boston. Um, it's going to happen and it doesn't matter like how hard we have to work, how long it takes us, we're going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Boston uh, and really all cities in Massachusetts, because we have off year elections. So the elections are not in 2020, 
or in 2022 or 2024 when everyone's paying attention because it's you know it's Biden versus Trump it's like Hillary versus Trump like that gets all the attention so more people turn out to vote sometimes as few as like 20 to 30 percent of people who are registered voters turn out to vote in those off years to pick mayors and city council members Mm -hmm. so unfortunately even though this is a policy that enjoys almost 80 or 90 percent support for not arresting people for uh, controlled substances possession it's still not a priority for like the public sector unions that kind of run the elections or the interest groups that are part of that 10 to 30 percent who actually show up to vote so it just takes a lot of work it takes a lot of education we're dealing with 70 years of misinformation. We're dealing with um, public health officials who don't even want to hear it, even though they're professionals in addressing the opioid crisis, they don't want to be educated. And it's bizarre when you see it, but they're like so arrogant Mm -hmm. that they think that psychedelics are not a tool or that they're not serious when they they cost a lot less and are going to be a lot more effective than medication assisted treatments like methadone. Some of those professionals, I think have just put so much of their lives into doing it one way Mm -hmm. that they don't really want to hear that there might be a better alternative. Yeah. (laughs) I totally see that. And I read that 66% of voters in Boston are for decriminalizing. So I hope that's true. That means we have like good amount. Of that study is uh, folks nationwide, actually. Mm. So oh. that would include people in Kansas, people in North oh, Dakota, in the, US. <laughs> the entire U.S. In Boston, uh, it was about sixty-six percent in twenty seventeen. Ah. You know, almost almost four or five years ago, and mm. since then, and especially since these cities have decriminalized. I think it's very, very easy to say that supports in 80 or 90% range, if not more. And then that study, uh, the 2017 survey of Massachusetts voters, what it, what it showed is that the people who were not supportive, a lot of them had no opinion. So a good 10 to 20% didn't have a strong opinion either way. And so lawmakers shouldn't be afraid of them because they're not going to show up and be upset that they passed that policy even if they're not supportive of it, they're just kind of indifferent. Um, the number of people who oppose it is is very small compared to those who are very passionate about ending it. Yeah. So like, what do you think is the argument against legalizing and or like decriminalizing? And like, what are the side effects of these plans? Yeah. So <clears throat> I think the main barrier or the main reason why we don't make progress as quickly as we would like is that a lot of lawmakers just don't have time to read about the issue. Mm -hmm. And because of the stigma that they have, they receive our emails and emails from their constituents. And it's very easy to click on it, glance at it, and then go on to the next email because they're flooded with communications all day. Mm -hmm. And they have so many issues, so many fires to put out affordable housing. I think, I think the opioid, opioid crisis should be like, if not the number one priority, definitely in the top three for our cities, just because it's killing so many people. Yeah. 
and causing such public nuisance and crime and housing issues uh, for our cities. Uh, I also get some pushback from lawmakers that are concerned about kids. And we've had to go through and kind of systematically debunk the claims of uh, some advocates who show up to council meetings and say, you know, we just don't want kids to get access to these things. Well, our culture is changing and kids are always curious about the world around them. Uh, we have force fed them propaganda about drugs instead of talking to them honestly about the risks. To my knowledge, there's, there's not any risks we've identified in children for use of psychedelics, but I wager to say that when you have a developing brain, you should probably wait till around age 22 to use cannabis or psychedelics. Uh, I certainly didn't wait till age 22 to use cannabis, yeah. but I wish I had. I really wish I had because I think there's emerging research showing that it might be better for your brain health because your brain's still developing. Mm -hmm. And I think the best we can do is educate kids. Another argument we would make there is, you know, let's say someone is giving their classmates shrooms. If they're your friend, um, you're not going to want to rat on them because they could go to jail. But if there's no risk of them going to jail, they could just get in trouble. Then you're not destroying their lives. And then maybe you would tell on them. Maybe you would tell an administrator you don't think that's safe. So it kind of empowers tattletales a little bit to know they're not destroying their friends' lives. And yeah. then if you're having a psilocybin experience and you're not having a good time, you're going to be less afraid to call your parents and have them pick you up because, you know, it's destigmatized. You're not going to get in as much trouble. You don't feel like you're going to go to jail. Kids don't really understand consequences too well. Yeah. Um, so when it's more open and we can be more open about this with our doctors and parents and, and kids, we're all going to be safer for it. I totally agree. So what can people do to help support the mission to decriminalize these plants? Yes. So please visit baystatersnm.org uh, or visit us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Our handle is at Baystaters. We have lots of cool events coming up in January. We have a leftist party and discussion in Somerville. Uh, we're organizing a party in U UMass Amherst. Uh, we are planning an art exhibit in Dorchester here in Boston. There's lots of events coming up. And then we also like to empower you to hold your own events. So if you have a cool or creative idea on how to destigmatize these plants and bring more people into the conversation, we're here to support you and use our network to get people to show up at your event or help support it, bring food, bring drinks, uh, bring live music. So get in touch with us, message us. And, uh, you know, there's also tools to email your city council, which is always really helpful just to reach out to them and speak from the heart. So every Thursday at 7 p.m., we hold what's called a community action hour. Uh, so these are Zoom calls where we usually have about 10 people come every week. And we just share our personal stories of why we care. We talk about strategy and get new ideas from the folks who are joining us. And then for the last 30 minutes or so, we actually take action together because it's really easy to procrastinate or not know exactly what to do. 
So Thursdays at 7 p.m., you know, we all show each other what to do and we're inspired to do it right there in the moment, whether it be making a few phone calls or just sending off a few emails to our city leaders. So definitely look into those. Uh, folks can sign up for that at tinyurl.com slash meeting. Awesome. I definitely want to go to those. <laughs> cool. To be more involved and spread awareness, you know. We yeah. need the help. We do. We do. Because oh, yeah. uh, lawmakers actually really like to hear from their constituents. They usually just hear from from Karens who are mad about this or that. So uh, if we can, you know, tell them about a lot more of a sexy subject like psychedelics and how it's helping people with addiction or depression, I think a lot of them do appreciate hearing from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. So where can people find you on social media? Yes. So at Bay Staters, that's the, uh, that's the handle for Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I guess on LinkedIn too, if, if you all are really into LinkedIn, uh, I'm certainly not. Yeah, I need to definitely work on mine. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to educate all of us. Yes. Thank you. And uh, excited to see some of you soon. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.